Welcome to the Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible, hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com, where you can also donate to support our work. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments on Facebook or Instagram. Welcome to the New Testament. <laughs> to the New Testament. What happened? Are you are you even here in this conversation? <laughs> Don't think you've ever done that. Welcome to the Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture. I'm Will Kimes. And I'm Ronnie Cosman. In this episode, we're looking at Matthew chapters 26 and 27, the trial and death of Jesus, and we are joined by Dr. Rebecca Eklund. Dr. Rebecca Eklund is Associate Professor and Chair of the Theology Department at Loyola University, Maryland. She is the author of Jesus Wept, The Significance of Jesus' Laments in the New Testament, which, as we were just talking about earlier, is now actually in paperback. You know, these academic books tend to be really expensive. Yes, so now you can afford it. Maybe, perhaps, hopefully, yes. I think it is more affordable for sure. Um, so, that, so that's great. So that's relevant because we'll be talking about Jesus' laments here at the uh, end of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, she's also recently uh, published The Beatitudes Through the Ages, which just came out in 2021 with Erdman's, um, which looks at how the Beatitudes have been interpreted throughout uh, history. And uh, this essay that I found really uh, interesting and helpful, Matthew, the Cross, and the Cruciform Life, uh, which is in this volume, Cruciform Scripture, Cross Participation, and Mission, um, which is a a really, I mean, the essay is really, really well written. I really enjoyed it. Well, she's also published a more popular version of Jesus Wept called Practicing Lament. And I came across that book when I was preparing for a workshop that I was doing with some local church leaders on incorporating lament in worship. And I found it so helpful in my preparation that I actually used some of the grant funds that I had to buy copies for all the workshop participants. Uh, So we're really grateful for your work and for your time being with us today, Rebecca. Thank you so much. Well, it's such an honor. I'm really excited to be with you all today. Great. Well, tell us what first drew you to the book of Matthew. Sure. So um, I'd always been really interested in the Gospels. Um, I was actually a pastor before I became um, a scholar, before I went over to the academic side of things. And I preached, you know, on and off on Matthew and um, was always intrigued, um, especially by the way that he um, used the the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. And I was definitely influenced by my reading of um, Richard Hayes' work when I was in seminary. Um, I think um, Richard Hayes' work was um, one of the first to really show me how deeply Matthew is integrating the story of Jesus with the story of Israel. So that was always kind of one thing that I was interested in. And then when I did graduate work at Duke, I took a class with Mark Goodacre on the Passion Narratives, which was super intriguing to me, especially because of how much uh, lament is interwoven into the passion narrative and into the story of Jesus. And that that class, plus a couple other things, was really what gave me my dissertation idea to look at lament in the New Testament. So, Great. Now, how do you see this section of Matthew here, chapter 26 and 27, how do you see it fitting into the book as a whole and relating to what comes before, after, and elsewhere in the gospel? 
Yeah, I mean, so I think these two chapters really fit into this ongoing theme of the fulfillment of Scripture, which which Matthew is obviously really interested in, right? From the very beginning of his narrative, Jesus fulfills Scripture. I mean, he just tells you. Mark is much more elusive, right? Um, You have to kind of read between the lines, but Matthew just comes right out and tells you over and over again, this happens to fulfill scripture. This happens to fulfill scripture. And I think you see that same theme ongoing here in the, in the passion narrative. So that's one thing. I also think you have a kind of continuation of this theme of Jesus embodying and reenacting the story of Israel, which you also see early on, right? So in Matthew chapter 2, you have Jesus um, as a child, as a baby, reenacting pieces of the Exodus story, but also of the exile story of being called out of Egypt, um, the return from exile, um, the temptation story where he's kind of reenacting um, the temptation of Adam, but also um, the, the wilderness wanderings, you know, Jesus 40 years in the desert. Um, so all of these things really come to fruition, I think, where you see Jesus um, I think particularly picking up the theme of the suffering servant from Isaiah, um, from Isaiah chapters 52 and 53, where you see this pattern of the suffering servant who is also this very multi-layered figure, right? Is sometimes the prophet Isaiah himself and sometimes as Israel as a nation going through this pattern of, of humiliation and suffering and then vindication and exaltation. And, and Jesus is definitely... Um, enacting that pattern, right? He's going through that pattern in his suffering, his trial and his death. And of course, with ending with chapter 27, we don't get to the exaltation part, but we have that very much signaled in the way he dies, right? In all of these cosmic eschatological signs at his death. Mm. Um, I thought I would mention just one other thing that caught my attention as I was kind of rereading these chapters and thinking about it. Um, You know, you have this interesting connection, I think, back to chapter two, when you have um, already from the beginning, you know about Rome's violence, right? You know that that the rulers of Rome have murderous intent toward anybody who tries to usurp their power. So anybody who declares themselves to be a king, Rome is going to kill. And you know that from the very beginning. And, and you see that, you know, working itself out um, in, in the death of Jesus here in the, in the crucifixion scene. Great. Now, you've also written on the Beatitudes. Um, obviously, we, we, you know, we just mentioned this book. Do you, see, do you see the Beatitudes also kind of reflected here in the trial and death of Jesus in any particular way? Absolutely. So I, I would say that you actually see Jesus um, embodying the Beatitudes all throughout the, the Gospel of Matthew. Um, so so some of the, the kind of key points of the embodiments happened before these chapters. But I think you see, I mean, the blessing on the persecuted is the most obvious one that he's kind of enacting here, not only showing himself to be a persecuted one, right? Someone who's persecuted for the sake of righteousness, but also showing what it looks like, I think, how do you respond to persecution? Well, you don't, you don't, return violence for violence. Um, you know, uh, he embodies some of the other qualities of the Beatitudes and the way that he responds to his persecution. Um, humility, which is how interpreters have commonly understood what it means to be poor in spirit, um, right? He knows his need of God. He cries out to God for help in his time of need in Gethsemane and again from the cross. Um, he shows um, his his meekness, which I, I 
write about in the book is not is not the virtue of kind of rolling over and letting things happen to you or being timid or but it's the virtue of um rightly restraining your anger right um it's it's um not losing your temper so again this theme of not violently lashing out at people who are showing violence to you he's specifically described as meek actually um I have to cheat and look at my notes. Um, so in chapter 21, verse 5, and this is where, um, you know, one of my, I, this is a common thing, right? But one of my New Testament professors would always say, the translator is a traitor. <laughs> and the translator usually does a great job, right? But, but here the translator, I think, has betrayed us just a bit because um, when it says, look, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, that word humble is the same word for meek that you get in the beatitude. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the prouse. And here you have, mm-hmm. your king is coming to you, prouse, meek, humble, and mounted on a donkey. So um, this is actually the second time in Matthew's narrative that Jesus has been described using the word meek. Um, and so he's exemplifying, what does that look like? What does that mean? And that is... You know, obviously, I think before the passion narrative, but it signals the way that he's going to behave throughout the passion narrative as he's facing his suffering and his and his persecution. Hmm. Yeah, I was struck reading back through this text uh, when Jesus is on trial and they're hurling all of these charges against him and he's not speaking in response. This is uh, chapter 27, verse 14. Um, he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor, so Pilate, was greatly amazed. And I think um, it, that to me, that's part of this living out the qualities of the Beatitudes, right? Um, I mean, there's also, you know, a, a kind of allusion there perhaps to, you know, um, uh, Jesus like a lamb is being led to slaughter and makes no sound, you know, this kind mm-hmm. of, right. but I think it's also, it's also, I think, a kind of callback to the Beatitudes, to this idea of, um, answering, you know, persecution with meekness, with humility, with these qualities that Jesus has told his followers are the qualities of the kingdom. Yeah, I was just thinking, reading it, like, how difficult it would be not to try to defend yourself when you have these people throwing charges at you. Wrongly, you know, wrongly, unjust charges, yeah. 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 I mean, and this is, um, I'm just, I'm looking back at the Beatitude again, um, you know, where he says, um, blessed are you, this is, Chapter 5, verse 11, blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, right? And so this theme of false charges is even part of the narration Mm -hmm. of the beatitude in its Mm -hmm. its context back in chapter 5. You know, it's it's leap for joy when this happens to you. Rejoice and be glad. Leap for joy is in Luke, so ignore I said that. (laughs) Um, Rejoice and be glad. You know, this is, you know, again, it's, it's not... It's not a tragedy that this is happening to you. It's a sign of, you know, your your home in the kingdom. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, one thing that we've seen all season is the way that Matthew is so interconnected, both with the Old Testament mm-hmm. and within, within the itself, gospel yeah. itself. Right. He's constantly picking up on early yeah. themes and drawing yeah. on them. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. within these chapters, Rebecca, what do you find most difficult to understand? Mm-hmm. What's most mm-hmm. challenging here? Yeah, that's such a good question. I mean, I think there are some things that are um, hard to understand, like exegetically, or like in terms of their their like what is going on here, like mm-hmm. the bodies of the saints coming out of their tombs. <laughs> like that's interesting. <laughs> um, 
So and I think I think we're probably going to talk about that more a little bit later. Um, uh-huh. But two two things that I I find difficult to wrestle with um, in terms of what the narrative is trying to tell us or just how certain people are portrayed is um, the remorse and then the suicide of Judas. I find that really challenging. Mm -hmm. I found it challenging to Mm -hmm. preach on, um, challenging to sort of think through kind of what this is saying about the the fate of Judas, um, especially because he's he's remorseful, right? So he shows repentance, he shows remorse, Mm -hmm. he returns his silver, um, and then, but then he hangs himself. And I just find that really challenging um, in terms of like how forgiveness might be operating in the life of Judas, since he never is able to kind of receive it in the narrative the way that Peter does. Can I ask you really quickly, how did you preach on it? What did you end up doing with that? Like, how how do you, did you come to any tentative kind of approaches to it or maybe tentative solutions? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the way I would preach on it is to say, um, you know, what the gospel tells us over and over again is that, um, uh, especially people who, you know, are remorseful and express repentance are not beyond d- divine forgiveness. They're not beyond the reach of Jesus' forgiveness. And there's also something that I think um, we'll talk about later, which is this theme of blood that that runs throughout these two chapters and mm-hmm. is picking up themes that you see from a couple of the previous chapters. And that blood is so much a part of Judas's story. I think Matthew wants us to notice that, right? It's called blood money. Um, there's a field of blood. Um, and where has blood just occurred right before this? Well, it's when Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many for what? For the forgiveness of sins. And so I think there's a way in which you can sort of see the narrator trying to show you, um, trying to help you like, why is blood here? Well, let's think about the, the relationship between blood and the forgiveness of sins. And, um, so, so that, that's one way that I, that I've tried to, to talk mm. about it. I mean, it, obviously when you talk about, you know, suicide in a, in a church, you're going to be dealing with people who have this as part of their family stories. And it's like, yeah. you know, you want to be very, I think, sensitive to just how forgiveness works in those contexts that, that people who do this are not beyond the, the reach of God's forgiveness, I think is the most important thing. Yeah. The pairing of Judas and Peter in this passage is so striking. You have two disciples, mm-hmm. both betray Jesus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then yeah. both, we, we don't really see, we see the repentance of Peter here, or is it just later? I mean, well, no, you see, um, I think you do see the repentance of Peter. This is at the very, very end of chapter 26. He, he, um, remembers what Jesus said and he goes out and he weeps bitterly. So interestingly, I mean, when it, when it talks about Judas, it, it uses the word remorse. Judas is, Judas is remorseful. Um, he regrets what he's done. And Peter weeps bitterly. And I think this is the representation in the text of Peter's regret, right, of Peter's remorse over what he has done. Um, and I think so. I, I do think the two stories are really mirroring each other, right? We have two betrayals. We have remorse. But in the case of Judas, you don't get that scene of restoration. Whereas um, with Peter, you get, you know, you get the kind of Peter re-included back into this group of disciples. I mean, they all need forgiveness at this point, right? Like all of them have fled, they've deserted Jesus. So it's, but Peter and Judas represent the kind of worst of the betrayals of all of them. But um, 
Yeah, there's this wonderful, and I tried to find it. So if anybody listening to this can find it for me, I'd be so grateful. I read once many years ago, um, I think when I was in seminary, this later Christian reflection on Judas that um, that talks about, um, uh, you know, Judas. So after he hangs himself, he awakes at the bottom of this uh, deep, dark pit, and he weeps for a thousand years. And then he decides to, he sees a light at the top of the pit. So he tries to climb out and he gets part way up and he, and he can't make it. So he falls back down and he weeps for another thousand years. And then he's like, I see that light up there. So I'm going to try again. And he climbs his way out of this pit. And when he emerges at the top, he reaches the light. Jesus is there waiting for him with the rest of the disciples, the 11 disciples. And Jesus says, oh, Judas, I'm so glad you made it. We've been waiting for you. And I just like, I'm so moved by this story because it, it it's just represents some later Christian reflection that says, Jesus is waiting for Judas. He forgave Peter. He forgave the other disciples. He forgives Judas. So I don't know. I just, I, I love that story. I have no idea where it is. <laughs> Now, before I interjected and asked, you know, asked you to uh, give us your kind of tentative uh, take on Judas, uh, you were about to say something else that you found challenging. Oh, yes. Um, so that is the way that the narrative handles the culpability of Pilate versus the culpability of the people in the death of Jesus. So this whole narrative of like Pilate washing his hands and the people mm -hmm. taking responsibility on themselves. Like I find that really challenging in, in large part because of the way it's been used to fuel anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism. Mm. Um, I mean, that is mm. just a really, really difficult part of the text, I think. Yeah. Yeah. We'll right. circle back to that later. We will, yes. The Passover features prominently uh, here and how the gospel, how, how the gospel narrates the death of Jesus. So in 26 verse one, Jesus says, you know, that after two days that the Passover is coming and the son of man will be handed over to be crucified. And then the chief priests and elders plan Jesus's arrest and death. But Matthew tells us in verse five, he says this, but they said not during the festival or there may be a ride among the people. Mm -hmm. Then in verses 17 through 29, Jesus eats the Passover meal with the disciples and connects his body and blood with the meal. And then in verse 27, we read of this exchange between Barabbas and Jesus, where Pilate releases Barabbas in place of Jesus. And Matthew tells us that the governor did this during, it was a custom he did during the festival. Mm -hmm. So what is the Passover festival and how and why is Matthew using it here in these chapters? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, the Passover festival is is obviously the the festival that um, almost reenacts and remembers the the exodus from Egypt, right? When God liberates the people from their enslavement in Egypt, and so you know you you eat all these foods that symbolize the the suffering of slavery and that last night in Egypt um, when you had to pack in a hurry and get ready to leave. So it's this kind of reenactment and remembrance of this this final night in Egypt and then liberation um, uh, and release from slavery. Um, and so I think there's a lot of like theological work going on in terms of how the narrative is using the Passover story and how. Um, you know, I've seen the Passover described, or the Last Supper rather, described as a kind of Haggadah on the Passover, a kind of Passover Haggadah that, that you know, where Jesus is 
enacting that, that, you know, what you would do on the, the night of the Passover, you ask the questions and you eat the different things, um, but is re-narrating the meaning of some of those things, right? So the, the bread that's on the table, um, he's re-narrating as his body, the, the wine that would have been on the table as part of the Passover meal, he's narrating as his blood. Um, so I think there's, there's certainly theological resonances, the way that this Passover story is, is taken up and being used um, by, by Jesus and by Matthew. Um, the way you drew attention to, you know, the point about, well, we don't want to kill him during the festival because there might be a riot. I mean, I think the Passover is also, there's a historical point being made here, right? Because the Passover is a pilgrimage festival. That's why Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem. They've come along with all these other pilgrims from Galilee and from the surrounding countryside into Jerusalem, because that's what you did. Um, it was a pilgrimage festival. You would go to Jerusalem. You'd offer, you know, you'd sacrifice in the, offer your sacrifice in the temple. Um, and then you would celebrate the feast in Jerusalem. So that's why they're all there. Now, why do, why do the chief priests or leaders fear this? Well, the one thing the Romans really hate is unrest. I mean, the Romans don't like riots, right? And they, they are really good at stamping those out. And so the people are like, we don't want to cause a disturbance and draw the attention of the Romans because that would be really bad for us. Um, and so there's this interesting kind of multi-layered thing going on here, right? Where there's, there's a kind of, it's serving a sort of historical purpose. Um, it drives the plot of sort of, the anxiety about the chief priests over whether they should arrest Jesus and they don't want to get in trouble with the Romans if they cause a riot. Um, but it's also doing some theological work, I think, about how Jesus is sort of picking up this Passover narrative and showing them that it's coming to fruition in him. He is the Passover lamb. I mean, John John's gospel just makes that super obvious for us, right? But I think that's also kind of going mm -hmm. on here in Matthew as well. Mm -hmm. And is Exodus imagery also being drawn on here where the passion becomes a kind of new Exodus? I, I think so. I mean, it's an interesting question because I do think you get some Exodus imagery at the very start of Matthew, um, right, with Jesus literally going down to Egypt um, and then coming out again, almost like he's enacting. And then you have Herod um, with the, the massacre of the innocents, which is a kind of reenactment of Pharaoh's killing of the Hebrew babies um, at the beginning of the Exodus narrative. So I think, I think Matthew has already used some of this Exodus symbolism. So I think it makes sense to think of also some of that Exodus symbolism going on here with all these references to the Passover. I don't think it's just a historical marker, right? Uh, like, it happened to be the Passover. I think the way the Last Supper is narrated is showing that it's also theologically resonant for Matthew. Yeah. So speaking of the theological resonance of the Last Supper, mm -hmm. uh, Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins in chapter 26, verse 28. So could yeah. you explain to us what he means by this covenant in his blood? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I think the first thing to say is I think this is a, a, a reference to Exodus chapter 24, verse 8, um, when Moses um, takes the, the blood of um, some oxen and dashes it on the people and says, um, here is the blood of the covenant. 
Um, and so blood and the covenant have already been closely connected, right, in this initial initial establishment of the covenant between God and Moses um, out Mount, at Mount Sinai. Um, and so this is this is a little, I think, reference to that. But this is uh, not, of course, the blood of animals or the blood of oxen. This is Jesus' own blood um, is establishing this covenant. So I think, so I think for Matthew, this is not fundamentally a brand new covenant. Like Luke is the one who uses the word new covenant, right? Um, mm-hmm. Matthew just says, "This is my blood of the covenant," and I think when he says the covenant, he's thinking of the covenant, right? The covenant that God made with Israel. Um, Now it's being fulfilled. It's being deepened. It's being brought to maybe a new kind of a a new level or element um, with, with the blood of Jesus. But I think, I think that's what Matthew is thinking of. This is, this is still deeply kind of embedded and, and connected to the story of God's covenant with Israel that is now uh, being fulfilled in this this new and surprising way through Jesus, but is still a, a, a continuation of that the promises that God made to Israel. I think. Now, in your book on Jesus's laments in the New Testament, so the book titled "Jesus Wept," you discuss a number of laments, and we find some of them here in chapters twenty six through twenty seven. And here is one of them: when we find Jesus in Gethsemane. Uh, Jesus has three of the disciples with him, right? Mm-hmm. And Peter is one of them. And uh, so, and Jesus, we read, is in verse 37, grieved and agitated. And he says mm-hmm. to them, my soul is deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and stay awake with me. And then we read, he threw himself on the ground and prayed. And he prays this, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. He then finds his disciples sleeping, <laughs> he rebukes them, and then he goes and he prays a second time. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he then turns and finds the, the disciples sleeping again, and then he prays a third time, uh, saying the same thing. So Jesus then, after this, he wakes them, and then he tells them that the hour of his betrayal is at hand, and he has some choice words for them, you know, throughout this. Um, yeah. when, when you talk about Jesus lamenting, what do you mean by that? And how do you see that operating here in the mm-hmm. Garden of Gethsemane scene? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I would say that there, there are two, two ways or kind of two levels where I see that. And one is that I think there's, there's a little um, illusion here or maybe a, a kind of echo, uh, a small quiet echo of Psalm 42. And it's actually um, in the Septuagint, it's Psalm 41. So um, if you look at this, the Greek version of um, Psalm 41, verse 12, you have this uh, this refrain that also appears in Psalm 43. So in Psalm 42 in the Septuagint, um, why are you very sad, my soul? So you have the word um, very sad, perilupos, which, which is, I think, in the NRSV here translated deeply grieved. So it's the word mm-hmm. perilupos, very sad or exceedingly sad. Um, and then you have a reference to... Um, uh, my soul. Um, so, which I don't think you have actually reflected in the, in the English translation, um, where it says my, my, um, my soul is deeply grieved, my psuche, which is also the word you have in the, in the Psalm. Now, like I said, this is pretty quiet echo, right? You just have a couple words, um, but I think you do have some resonances with this refrain from Psalm 42 or Psalm 41 in the Septuagint, which is, which is a kind of lament, a lamenting refrain, right? So I think you do have 
um, some of that language from this psalm being picked up and used here by Jesus as he prays. But I think you also see what we might think of as just the kind of pattern of, of lament, where you have um, a, um, a sort of like expression of, of distress. And I think in some ways you just get that through the descriptions of, um, you know, he is, he is agitated, he is grieved, uh, grieved is such a kind of lament where you see this over and over again in the Psalms, my soul is troubled. Um, so I think you have a lot of kind of lamenting language to the, describing sort of Jesus state here. Right. And then you have a petition and you, you always have a petition as part of the lament. So I think the heart of the lament is actually not just the, the, the expressions of distress, but it's the request or the demand or the cry for help. Like that's the heart of the lament. And I think you, Jesus, you see Jesus doing that here. Um, right. He says, um, if it is possible, take this cup away from me. Like that's, that's a petition, right? He's asking the mm-hmm. father in the midst of his distress and grief, take this cup away from me. If it is possible, I would prefer not to suffer and die. <laughs> you know, I, I, if I can, if I can do it some other way, take this cup of suffering away from me. Um, but then he also does um, what I think is kind of what you see as the typical um another very typical element of the lament pattern, which is this turn to trust or hope or um, expression of, you know, thanks in God's steadfast love. And it's often expressed in the lament psalm with a yet or a but. Um, Yet I will trust in your steadfast love, but I will sing of your love forever. This is sometimes in in Hebrew, it would be called like the vav adversative, right? The, 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 the yet and we have we have a yet in this in this passage we have a we have a but um if this cannot pass unless i drink it um uh, yet or nevertheless which i also don't think is is captured here in the english your will be done not my will but yours be done so i think in this in this very short you know kind of prayer that jesus is praying i think you see this kind of two the two parts of the common lament pattern. You have a petition in the midst of distress. You kind of have a cry for help, but then you have this submission to God's will. You have this trust in God's will. And to me, that's very much like this little compressed window into the typical lament pattern. Does that make sense? Yeah, mm-hmm. it does. And uh, you also have the invocation, which is the often the first element. Of oh yeah, of course. Of mm-hmm. Yeah, even invocation. Right. So my father. All, all <laughs> if it is my father, uh, yeah. And this is in practicing lament. I think you lay this out so clearly, and you use Psalm 13 as a nice abbreviated example where we get all four. Yeah. Now, when we encounter the laments in the Psalms, they vary. They move these elements around, and they don't all have all four of them. But Psalm 13 is a great example of getting all four in a row. Yep. So listeners might want to go look back at Psalm 13 and then read these words from Jesus. And it is that he just compresses it all into one line here uh, in a way that once you're aware of how limits are generally structured, you can see. So yeah, exactly. Helpful. Yeah. And Psalm 13 is so helpful because it's the only one that does that, you know, so. Which is <laughs> so clear in the way it's yeah. laid out. Now, do you, in a, in a lot of these lament psalms, like, I think like you mentioned earlier, there's always a kind of hope that God is going to come through. Right. I, w- I would say all. I would say all of them except maybe Psalm eighty-eight. Okay. So so okay. Psalm eighty-eight um, ends the last line. Um, I don't know what it would be exactly in this translation. It's like um, my companions are darkness. Is um, one kind of 
Okay. Translation, I've heard of this. Darkness um, is my only friend. Oh, okay. Darkness okay. is my only so, friend. Darkness is my only companion. So Psalm 88, <laughs> um, I think, is, is, you know, if you look at all the other lament songs, you know, there's some expression somewhere in them, you know, not always at the end, sometimes at the end of, you know, trust or hope. Um, interspersed with the complaints and the, you know, the petitions and so forth. But in Psalm 88, it's pretty dark. I mean, Psalm 88, you just, you just have, and it, you know, kind of, it ends with this note of like darkness. There's no turn to trust here. And actually, I love that this Psalm is in the Bible. I think it is so important that it's like, sometimes you just can't make that turn, right? Sometimes you, you just can't get all the way to trust and hope. And Psalm 88 is there to say, that's okay. <laughs> you know, and, and Psalm 88 is also, which I find really interesting. Um, Psalm 88 is sort of bounded on both sides by these Psalms of praise and, and hope. So Psalm 47 is, is a Psalm of joy about Zion. And then Psalm um, 90, or Psalm 89 is, um, starts, I will sing of your steadfast love, O Lord, forever. So Psalm 88 is sort of I don't know, sandwiched between these. Mm -hmm. And I also don't think that's accidental. I mean, I think the, the way the Psalms were organized was purposeful. So I think it takes this dark Psalm that cannot make the turn to hope and sort of gives it, gives it companions, um, where yeah. it gives it companions of joy and trust, but does it like nobody messed with that Psalm? Do you know what I mean? Like nobody was like, you know what? We need to add a line. Like it's too dark. Like nobody changed it. And I, I love that. So what do you see is the significance of Jesus um, evoking this lament psalm in particular? Um, like, are we supposed to see him al also kind of evoking a sense of hope that is to come? Mm. Or like, w w which we might see in, in when he evokes Psalm 22 on the cross. And we'll talk, maybe we'll talk yeah. about that in the in a few minutes, but, or it, are maybe is that overreading? And maybe we're just supposed to read the grief here and, and that's it. What do you, what do you do with that? Mm. Yeah, it's such a good question because I think it's 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 really the key question when it comes to understanding the quotation of Psalm 22, um, in you know um, when he's being crucified, and I, and I think there's there's kind of two opposite mistakes from from my perspective. Um, I mean, I think if you if you're hearing this resonance and you're hearing Psalm 42, I don't see how you couldn't hear in a sense kind of the whole psalm right um i mean all you have to do is is tell someone who's deeply immersed in scripture all you have to do is say the line the lord is my shepherd and you're immediately thinking of of the whole psalm 23 right you you just right. if that thing is down in your bones you just you you think of the whole thing so if you are immersed in the psalms and you've memorized whole psalms which we know people did and you hear you know my soul is very sad. And you think of Psalm 42. I don't think you're thinking just of that line, right? It opens up the rest of the world of that Psalm to you. Now, I think it's one mistake on one side, I think is to detach that line from its context and not to hear anything from the rest of the context. Cause I do think, um, you know, the, the technical term for this is metalepsis, right? Which is how much of the wider context of something is being evoked here. And I do think the wider context of the psalm is being evoked here. The whole world of the psalm is kind of being brought into our minds. Um, but I think the, the mistake on the other side is then to say, well, this is really, this is a trusting prayer, <laughs> you know? This doesn't, there's no agony or sorrow here. And I think, oh, no, no, let's not jump too quickly to, 
the trust portion of the psalm, let's let the sorrow and the grief of this stand within the wider context, but we don't want the turn to trust to mute the genuine expression of, of anguish and mm. sorrow here. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a powerful scene that you have Jesus expressing this anguish yeah. and grief, because I think people can tend to think of Jesus as this kind of spiritual robot, <laughs> but mm-hmm. he's a human, and he's yeah. facing crucifixion and torture and death, and he reflects the, that kind of human response to it in a powerful way. Uh, yeah. Well, let's, t- let's look at Peter again. We talked about Peter a little bit mm. um, before um, in terms of that connection with Judas, but Peter is here throughout this text over and over again. So uh, Jesus foretells that the disciples will deny him. And, of course, it's Peter who says in verse 35, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. It's just classic yeah. Peter. Uh, and yeah. then he's also here praying in Gethsemane. And then after Jesus is arrested and tried, we hear of Peter's denials. We talked about that. So do you think that Matthew is using the character of Peter to communicate something here? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I tend to think so because it's, it's such a, a, to me, it's such a kind of transparent, like, I mean, Peter is like, I would die for you. And then <laughs> immediately, as soon as someone asks him, like, what, didn't you hang out with that guy? He's like, I don't even know who it is. <laughs> you know, I mean, he just immediately <laughs> rolls over. Right. Um, and, and, and I just think like the kind of wonderful frailty of, of Peter, you know, when you get to the end of the story, um, like Pe- Peter's there, <laughs> um, and he's commissioned to take the gospel out into the whole world. Like there's no, Jesus never rebukes him. Jesus never yells at him for this. You know what I mean? Even though there's no kind of obvious scene of restoration here, the way that you get, you know, narrated in John's gospel, um, I think you just have this wonderful image of this person who just falls apart instantly, <laughs> you know, when when faced with when faced with difficulty and fear of his own death. Um, but but it's just brought back into the circle of disciples with without even a comment. Like, um, and I just I just think that's a kind of lovely commentary on any of us, you know, who who don't hold our faith firm in the face of difficulty, um, that, that you're just reintegrated right back into the story. So now we have a repeated reference to the son of man, uh, in chapter 20, uh, 26, Jesus says in verse two, that the son of man will be handed over to be crucified. Uh, during the Passover meal, Jesus says to his disciples that the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that, to that one by whom the son of man is betrayed. Uh, after he prays in Gethsemane in verse 45, he says that the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Uh, and when Jesus is asked by the high priest, if he is the Messiah, Jesus says, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Verse 64. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What does this phrase, the, the son of man mean? And wh- why does Jesus refer to himself like this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a great question because it's it's such an interesting kind of feature of how Jesus refers to himself, right? He he at least in in Matthew, um, you know, he he never says, you know, I am the Lord or I am the Messiah. I mean, there's there's it's much more elusive than that. So he gives himself this title that that 
I think in some ways has been read simply as a kind of reference to Jesus' humanity um, or a circumlocution, a really complicated way of saying I. <laughs> um, I don't think I don't think we can reduce it to that. Um, and I think there I think the the background that is being given to us in in the verse you just quoted in chapter 26 verse 64 from now on you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven um i mean i think that's a reference to to Dan- daniel chapter 7 um i think it's daniel 7 13 um yeah Jan- daniel chapter 7 verses 13 to 14 where you have the son of man as this heavenly exalted figure um who who will be given dominion over all the nations and i think you have i think a pretty clear reference to daniel 7 happening in in this in this chapter and of course how the high priest responds to it is is clearly understanding that jesus has associated himself with this exalted you know heavenly heavenly figure one thing that that many scholars have noticed as a puzzling feature of of this title the son of man is that is the double article it is the son of the man in greek like why the double article and Joel Marcus's proposal is that this is like a reference to the son of Adam, the son of the man. And who is the man in scripture? Well, the man is Adam. And But his, his argument is not that this is merely a reference to kind of Adam in Genesis 1. It's not simply, you know, again, Jesus' way of saying, I am human. <laughs> um, but it's a reference to the way that Adam gets picked up in later Jewish tradition as this glorified figure who's, who's, you know, original dominion, right? Um, Adam was given dominion over, over the earthly realm, whose dominion over the earthly realm will be restored at the eschaton. Um, and so if you look at some of these Jewish traditions that have speculated on the role of Adam um, and, and the role that Adam will play at the eschaton, um, Marcus's proposal is that, you know, this title, the son of man, the son of Adam, is is kind of resonating in the background of this title that Jesus has picked up for himself. I think that's super intriguing. Um, so obviously, Daniel 7, I think, is is the background that that is, you know, being almost directly quoted here. But I think there's also something interesting about where this title comes from at all like what why is daniel using the son of man as this exalted title so i I just find that really intriguing so let's just talk more generally to start off with about chapter 27 we've got a lot of major themes here uh we've got judas's regret we already talked about that a good bit Pilate releasing barabbas instead of jesus and then we get jesus's crucifixion so could you just talk more generally about what's going on in this chapter what is matthew accomplishing if I if I could answer that question in a in a especially in the interest of time in a slightly narrower way, um, and that is really thinking about the theme of how how blood is operating in this chapter because I mean I, there's a lot going on in this right, but I think one of the the thing that I would kind of want to hone in on is the blood of the covenant 2628 and how that is kind of resonating through into chapter 27 right so when Jesus describes you know uh, the wine of the Passover meal as his blood of the covenant. Earlier in chapter 23, verse 35, you have um, in the woes on the scribes and Pharisees, you have um, one of the woes um, talking about all the righteous blood of the prophets that has been shed upon the earth. Um, In chapter 27, verse 6, you have the theme of blood returning um, at the very beginning um, with um, the description of the pieces of silver being described as blood money. And then you have this field of blood. Um, and then 
with Pilate. You have Pilate washing his hands um, and saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. So this is chapter uh, 27, verse 24. And then the people saying, his blood be on us and on our children. So I just think that the narrator is calling our attention repeatedly to this theme of blood, 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 blood. And it's so central, I think, to what he thinks is going on here, that Jesus' death is establishing this covenant for the forgiveness of sins through the shedding of his blood. And I, and I just think that there's a lot of other things going on, but I think that's one of the main things that's going on here. Hmm. That's yeah, that's great. The, uh, with that last one where the crowd say his blood be upon us and on our children, right. In verse 25. Now, of course, that's a verse that's been, uh, leveraged, you know, to stigmatize Jews and has fueled, you know, lots of anti-Semitism and anti-Jewish rhetoric and, um, has been used in pretty abhorrent ways. Do you have some, so in light of your kind of connection with blood, actually that just kind of almost like, uh, gives us a really different way to think about, you know, how, or how to take this verse. But do you have any uh, suggestions of what do we need to understand about the passage or, or how we could handle it? Um, how, what do you do with, with this verse? Yeah, it's such a difficult verse, right? And I think it's been, I mean, I, I guess I want to say two things about it. One, it's been terribly misused, right, in, in these really harmful and dangerous ways against, against Jews um, up to the present day. Um, I think another thing I want to say about it is that um, I don't know that there's any way to completely remove all of the difficulty from this verse, right? Um, it's 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 challenging, but I think there's a couple things we can we can say about it. So one is when it says, um, "His blood be on us and on our children." This has sometimes been read as like um, a perpetual curse down through like the the rest of history, you know, on all Jewish people forever and ever and ever. I think that is wrong. Um, And I I think one of the things that, um, and on our children, one of the functions that it has is to point us toward the destruction of the temple. Um, The the narrative has has been laying the groundwork for two things to happen in chapter 27. Um, well, not, it doesn't happen in chapter 27, but two, two events that are signaled that are coming. The destruction of the temple, which has been narrated, you know, at, at great length, judgment on the temple, the coming destruction of the temple, and these eschatological signs, right? The eschatological new age. So um, on our children, I think one of the things it's doing is pointing forward to the destruction of the temple because... The people alive in Jesus' time, it is their children who are going to live through the destruction of the temple, right? It's one, gen- it's one generation ahead. So I think that, that that's the function of this on our children. It's not about this blood guilt going mm. down through all the centuries. I think it's limited right. to that next okay. generation. And it's really about, I think, um, looking forward to this event that Jesus has wept over, right? I think that's also important to remember when he pauses over Jerusalem and he weeps over the fate of Jerusalem. It's about what he sees coming, right? Which is the, the uh, coming revolt and the war and the, and the destruction of the temple by the Romans. Um, I think another thing to, to think about this is I always try to tell my students when I teach Matthew or any of the gospels, um, but Matthew, especially, try to read it as a, it's not a Christian document. It's a Jewish document. 
Um, and I think if you try to read it as a Jewish document that is sort of internal to Judaism, and you read this as a kind of prophetic critique, much like Amos, for example, um, uh, I think it it makes more sense in, in the context of sort of an internal prophetic critique within Judaism. If you position it as a Christian critique against Jews, that that's a that's a misstep already right that you you've kind of already moved it into that direction now it doesn't take away all the difficulty but i think positioning it that way is really helpful now the last thing i would say i do think there is an intentional irony going on here i mean there's a lot of irony threaded throughout this narrative right um jesus being declared the king of the jews Mm-hmm. We know that's true. Pilate doesn't think that's true. The reader knows that's true. And I think when the people say, his blood be on us and on our children, where has blood appeared in the narrative just before this? Well, it's Jesus saying, my blood is for the covenant, which is for the forgiveness of sins. So I think the people, by taking, assuming responsibility for the death of Jesus, which Pilate has tried to avoid, the leaders have tried to avoid, right? They've done everything they can to be absolved of the responsibility for this. But the people, when they take Jesus' blood on themselves, they're taking on this blood of the covenant that is promised for the forgiveness of sin. So I think there's there's a way to read this as a kind of ironic, um, ironic mm. pronouncement. I mean, throughout Matthew, you've seen the people being pretty favorable to Jesus and following him and he feeds them. And it's always the leaders who are against him. And here you finally have the, the Jewish leaders Um, kind of persuading the people to turn against Jesus. But here you have this final separation, I think, here in the narrative where the leaders are like, everyone is like, it's Pilate's fault. No, it's the chief priest's fault. It's it's nobody's fault. It's the people's fault, (laughs) you know, and the people you have will take the blood on us. But from the perspective of the narrator, that's a great thing. That's the best thing possible that could happen to you is taking Jesus' blood on yourself. So I think that's one kind of final thing I would want to say about it. Mm-hmm. It does circle back to our the initial comment you made about blood mm-hmm. throughout these two chapters is Moses putting the blood on the people right, exactly. there at Sinai. Uh, so mm-hmm. there is that kind of connection. Well, let's move right into your wheelhouse and look at Jesus's allusion to, uh, to Psalm 22 on the cross. So, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So... Is Jesus here lamenting that God has forsaken him? Uh, How much do we understand the rest of Psalm 22 influencing our interpretation of what Jesus says here? Guide us through some of your thoughts on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so is is Jesus lamenting that he feels forsaken by the Father? I would say absolutely, yes. Um, And and I think this this is the, the absolute darkest point in this narrative, right? That the, the son who throughout has had this, you know, close relationship with his, with his father, with God, feels separate from him. Um, and I, I just don't think we, we, I don't want to downplay that. Now, at the same time, I guess I'll say something similar that I said about Psalm 42 in Gethsemane. Um, it is this little, you know, fragment of, of Psalm 22 meant to kind of evoke the wider context of Psalm 22? I think it is. So is it like a completely, you know, despairing cry with no hope at all? No, I don't think so. I mean, lament is because it is addressed to God. Um, even if, you know, it's a, a wounded trust or a despairing trust or, you know, a, a angry or fearful or whatever, all those things are true. It still turns toward God in prayer. 
Uh, and I think that, again, like the Lord is my shepherd might bring up all of Psalm 23, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is going to evoke the rest of the psalm, which of course ends on this triumphant, victorious note of God accomplishing his purposes, right? And I think that's also in the background. Now, I don't want to get there too quickly, but I don't want to ignore that that's part of what's being evoked here as well. Yeah, I, I always ask this question to my students. I, we come to this part in, in the Gospel of Matthew, and I ask them, okay, did the Father forsake the Son? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we get into an interesting conversation. Uh, but I get, you know, my, t- my tendency is to read it as, I always want to answer it as, an, as that he's not praying that the Father has forsaken the Son, but he's, he's evoking the whole prayer of the psalmist. Right. And it's a prayer of the superscription anyways, is it's a Psalm of David. Right. So here's the son of David. Right. Uh, as Matthew narrates and that he is when he says in Psalm 22, uh, why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the, you know, uh, from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. I guess I tend to maybe uh, fall into the category of people who kind of mute that a little bit because <laughs> I, I go to other parts of the psalm where he will say, I think he'll say something like, That's right, all the ends of the earth will come to you, he'll say, but you have not hidden your face from me. Um, and things like that. So uh, it, you see a lot of deliverance here that the psalmist will will also pray, like you've mentioned already, right? He, the psalmist also mm-hmm. prays that God has delivered him as though it's a past tense uh, event, even though I think he's thinking about it, it, hoping that it will happen in the future. He speaks of it as though it has already happened. And maybe this is splitting hairs, but I think I would want to distinguish between God genuinely forsaking Jesus and Jesus feeling as if God has forsaken him, right? Okay, I see. Um, Because we can feel all the time as if God has left us and hidden his face from us. And that might not be true, but we feel it to be true. And so I, and again, this, this might be a, a fine distinction, but I think it's a really important distinction because I just think, again, I don't, I don't, I think it's important not to sort of downplay the genuine cry of abandonment that this is, right? Jesus doesn't yeah. pick some other verse from the psalm to pray, right? He prays the line, why have you forsaken me? Does he feel forsaken? I think if we read this line and we take yeah. it seriously, he does. Now, does this mean it's true sure. that God has decided to abandon him? No, sure. there's a lot of other things in the narrative that sure. tell us that's not true. But does Jesus yeah. in this moment feel that's true? I think, I think for me, we got it. We have to kind of take that seriously and not yeah. kind of jump too quickly to these other kind of more hopeful moments of the Psalm. I don't know. Does that make sense? That's the yeah, way I've kind sure. of tried yeah. to understand no, it. No, no, I think, I think, I think that's great. One of the things I think that presses me to want to really bring into these other uh, pieces here, like you'll say in verse, um, 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far away. And then verse 20, deliver my soul from the sword, save me from the mouth of the lion. And then, uh, from the horns of the wild oxen, you have rescued me. I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters. The, I think the reason why I want to really press in onto those is because Matthew has been evoking Psalm 22 throughout, even before Jesus oh, yeah. says, Absolutely. you know, my God, my yeah. God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah. Right? Which, Almost like which in reverse order, right? Um, 
Yeah, yeah. But no, Psalm yeah, 22 so, is woven throughout yeah. the passion narrative. And at the same time, Jesus doesn't pray from the cross, from the horns of the wild oxen, you have rescued me, right? He prays, yeah, why have you forsaken yes. me? That's so so yeah. again, it's not that I don't right. want to hear this context in the background. Yeah. I also right. just don't want to diminish the anguish of this particular moment on the cross, right? Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, that's a great yeah. Well, uh, Matthew tells us two things that happened when Jesus died. So first, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And we'll talk about, I'm going to give you both of these and then ask you to reflect on what they are significant, both of them. So the first is that one. And then the second, we have this episode that's unique to Matthew. It's unique in lots of ways. (laughs) (laughs) The earth shook. This is verses 51 to 53. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Verse 53. After his resurrection, they came out of the tombs and entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now, I think a lot of people overlook that after his resurrection. So we're supposed to envision these bodies raised and then sitting in their tombs for a couple of days. So what's going on with these two events that are connected with Jesus' death? Yeah. Well, I'll do the second one first, because the short answer to the second was, I, I have no idea. <laughs> I just, like, I don't have any idea what's going on here. I mean, that's that's a little flippant. Um, I mean, these are these are sure. clearly kind of eschatological signs, right? They're kind of prolepsis or a foretaste of the general resurrection, um, which which clearly you see embedded into early Christianity. But But what is precisely going on here is quite puzzling. Like, the bodies of the saints are raised at the moment that Jesus is crucified, but they don't come out of the tombs until after his resurrection. Um, like, wh- what is going on here besides the fact that they're clearly eschatological signs and this kind of foretaste of the resurrection? I mean, I think that that's kind of all I can say about it in terms of where this comes from. There's Dale Ellison in his new book on the resurrection of Jesus has a little section on this in one of his chapters that that I think is really helpful little exploration of this. So, so I will point readers in that direction (laughs) for the, for the temple being uh, temple curtain being torn. um, I mean, I think one, one interesting way to understand this is um, as a sign of um, God tearing his clothes at the death of his son, you know, the way that people tear their garments to express deep uh, grief and mourning. I don't think that's the primary resonance of this, but but I, I find that a kind of interesting way to think about it as sort of God's grief at the death of his son. He tears his clothes. Um, and where does, you know, God live? He lives in the temple. Um, but, but I think the more obvious resonance um, is with the way that the narrative has been laying the groundwork for God's judgment on the temple. Um, right for for the, his its judgment on the Jewish leaders for their failure to properly shepherd Israel, um, judgment on the temple in other ways connected to the coming you know destruction by the Romans. So I do think there's a kind of moment of of judgment on the temple here at Jesus' death, and also you know another perhaps kind of theological way to understand it is this kind of removal of the barrier between heaven, the, you know, the, the holy space in the temple and the earthly realm. So another kind of eschatological sign of this kind of blending of the heavenly space and the earthly space. So, so it's a really interesting, you know, resonant image, I think. Maybe we can, we can end on this question because I think, you know, uh, when we read Paul, you, you know, Romans, Galatians, whatever, uh, the question of what does Jesus' death accomplish, it's, it's almost like explicitly stated repeatedly, right? 
when you read Matthew, what do you see him saying as significant about what Jesus's death accomplishes and what it does? Is it just something, it's kind of an unfortunate piece to the narrative, or does it actually, um, you know, does, what does it do kind of in, in the story? If, if Matthew was to give you the answer, what, what do you think he, he might say? Yeah. Well, I think to reiterate a couple things we've already talked about, one is that I think he sees his death as establishing this, this covenant. I mean, I'm trying to avoid saying new covenant, but in some ways, I suppose you can call it a new covenant, right? Um, and that has to do, I think, with this emphasis on the blood of Jesus. So I think the death the death establishes and opens up this new covenant. And I think it also is the inauguration of the new age. It's, it's the eschatological world, the eschaton breaking in at the death of Jesus. I mean, all of these dramatic eschatological signs don't take place at the resurrection, right? They take place at the death when he dies. Mm -hmm. So I think the death of Jesus for Matthew accomplishes both of those things. It's, it establishes this new covenant, and it's the inauguration of the eschaton, you know, breaking in. And I think he really emphasizes that through these, these curious signs of the tombs being opened and the bodies of the saints coming out. I mean, this is a little foretaste of the general resurrection at the end of time, right? Mm -hmm. You get a little window into that. So the, those two mm -hmm. things, I mean, that's a short answer, but two pretty monumental things, I think. Yeah, great. Yeah. Well, we like to end each episode by asking our guests for a blurb. A recommendation of something that our listeners might find helpful because you've recently found it helpful. So it could be a book, uh, but it could be anything else. It could be a movie or a TV show or a wallet, an album, or <laughs> a, a bar of soap. It's been, we've had all these recommendations. <laughs> oh, really interesting! <laughs> wow, I, I I I need to broaden my my imagination here. I think. <laughs> We've also yeah, had so, books too. <laughs> okay, well, can I can I do can I do two? I'll be short. Yes, um, I've already I've already mentioned Dale Allison's book on the resurrection of Jesus, which I found endlessly fascinating, um, and actually wrote a, a review essay of recently. So um, that that book it's called The Resurrection of Jesus. Super interesting. Um, but I also um, started. Pardon. Sorry, I was just going to interrupt. Uh, sorry. Uh, for our listeners, if you haven't let, yet listened to our introduction to Matthew with Dale Allison, what a fun episode. He is full of energy and so much insight into Matthew. So go back and listen to that one. Sorry, Rebecca, go ahead. I'll also say yeah, that no, you I... your essay, your review essay is in a, a it's in a, is it a Bulletin of Biblical Research? Yes, mm -hmm. Bulletin of Biblical right, Research. Right, in BBR. Yeah, Right there, there's a there's a your 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 essay is in there, and there are a number of essays responding mm -hmm. to Dale Allison's book, and then he gives a response as well. So that's yeah, an yeah. Interesting there's a whole issue. There's a whole issue of BBR kind of interacting with the book. So yeah, 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 um, yeah. And that that, that I listened to that podcast episode this morning. Actually, it was super fun <laughs> with Dale. So, <laughs> um, I. But I just started reading another book, which I'm not done with yet, but I'm really loving it. And it's Amy Peeler's book, Women and the Gender of God. And I just think it's it's wonderful. It's this theologically rich, rich exploration of the gender of God and a kind of argument against, you know, the, the masculinity or the, the maleness of God. So really enjoying that. And I, I recommend that to everybody. And the, the, the next thing is not a book, and it's not a Bible thing, because I think all biblical scholars should have non 
scholarly <laughs> hobbies. <laughs> so it's the TV show Andor, which I went into with oh, kind of yeah. low expectations. I was kind of like, oh, it's a Star Wars thing. It'll be fine. And I loved it. It's so interesting. Um, I mean, I thought, like, I could use this in a class to teach about, like, the Roman Empire, right? And how, like, what empire is and how oppression mm-hmm. works and how revolts begin and how messy and complicated they are and how much people have to sacrifice to oppose oppressive rule. I mean, it's just, it's so much fun. I love the characters. It's super well done. So, so, and, or it's great. Great. Well, thank you, Rebecca, for taking the time to walk us through uh, quite a bit of material here. <laughs> it's a very dense section of Matthew, right? Yes. The, the yeah. trial and death of Jesus. And uh, But we really enjoyed our time talking to you about it. And to those of you listening, thanks for tuning into the Two Testaments. And uh, if you enjoyed this conversation, please go on to Apple Podcasts and give us your only five-star. Well, you can give others five-star ratings as well, but uh, your best five-star rating, and we would appreciate that. Thanks for listening. The Two Testaments is produced with support from Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to you, our fellow travelers, who support this journey by donating on our website, thetwotestaments.com. Thanks also to Cam Thomas, Joe Zellner, and the team in the Sanford Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants for their help with production, editing, and promotion.